Here are the headlines from the BBC News News World, World of the News page on Friday. A night of mayhem in Hong Kong. That was the top one. Kashmiri's alleged torture in army crackdown. Great Barrier Reef outlook has now been classified very poor. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, the Ebola outbreak now tops 2,000. Those were the biggest headlines on the world news page on Friday. Why is there so much wrong with this world? Anyone involved in evangelism knows the issue most commonly brought up by people is suffering. Why is there so much wrong with this world? Why does God allow it? How did the world become like this? Well, we've been going through Genesis 1 to 2, and those chapters insist God didn't make the world like this. It was very good. Now we've got to Genesis 3, and it shows us how the world went wrong. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 3. Right at the start of your Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Here we're shown a world that was good going so wrong. And that makes this such an important chapter for understanding our world and ourselves. It makes it such an important chapter for seeing what is needed to put it right and is there any hope of it being put right. And it also makes it a very important chapter for strengthening faith. The Bible doesn't ignore the mess. The Bible isn't just an ancient fairy tale. Now, I must admit, Genesis 3 also tests our faith because it doesn't answer all our curiosity. There are a lot of things it's strangely silent about. In fact, Genesis 3 tells us The demand, we must know it all, is part of the problem. We want to know it all because we want control. And we feel rather not in control if there are things we don't know. We want to be in control rather than trusting God. And here in Genesis 3, that's actually at the heart of the problem. Wanting control rather than trusting God. So Genesis 3 doesn't satisfy all our curiosity. It it tells us what God says we need to know and is effectively asking us, will we trust him with that? So, let's hear from Genesis 3, what does God say we need to know? What do we find in verses 1 to 6? Well, first of all, we find a snake. First one. Now the serpent, it's just another word for snake. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Who is this snake? Now, have you seen children's story Bibles of this? And there's a rather cartoonish picture of these wonderful looking people, Adam and Eve, and thankfully she's got long hair that's very tactfully placed and there are some trees that are just right placed to cover up the essentials and there's a shiny green snake hanging down from a branch and they're contemplating a shiny red apple. How on earth can 21st century people take that seriously? Us advanced people of the 21st century can't believe that, can we? Well, that's a very arrogant start. 
Were people in the 17th century or the 1st century AD idiots who believed snakes talked? For that matter, were people in the time of Moses when this was written idiots who believed snakes talked? And often our attitude to this is very arrogant as if we've somehow discovered snakes don't talk. People back then, they were just simpletons. No, they were people like us. And they knew the Bible isn't the sort of fairy tale that has talking animals. So when they read, the snake said, they would know, this is telling us, be shocked. This is telling us there is something really going wrong here. We're being told there's something beneath the surface. Look beneath the surface. In fact, the people that Moses was first writing to were Jewish And maybe they were actually cleverer readers than us because they really liked plays on words. Do you like people being clever with their words? And there's a play on words here. In the previous verse, we read that the people were naked. And there's a play on words with, in this verse, we read the snake was crafty. In the original language, naked and crafty sound very similar. Maybe it could be translated like this. Now, the man and his wife were nude, but the snake was shrewd. Do you get it? The man and his wife were nude, but the snake was shrewd. What's it telling us? The man and his wife, they were open and honest. They had nothing to hide. Along comes someone, and he's not open and honest. There's something hidden going on here. There is something hidden behind this snake. You've got a similar play on words in verses 6 and 7. They wanted to get wisdom, verse 6, they ended up naked, verse 7. Again, they wanted to become shrewd and they ended up seeing they're just nude. Similar play on words. They wanted to be like the snake, independent of God, able to do their own thing away from God. They ended up seeing they are just exposed to God. But that's getting ahead of ourselves because we're still supposed to be in verse 1. Here we have something going on behind the scenes, it's telling us. There's something hidden about this snake. So if it's not a fairy tale of snakes that talk, if there's something hidden beneath the surface, what is it? Or who is it? What does verse 1 tell us? Well, actually, it doesn't. It doesn't tell us who it is. We're not told here. We have to wait till later in the Bible. In fact... To get it put down in full, you have to wait till the last book in the Bible where it tells us the serpent is Satan, the devil. God created angels. Some of them rebelled against him. It seems that one of them, Satan, had a particularly high position but wasn't satisfied with that and he wanted to take God's place and be independent of God. Does that ring a bell? And he became the enemy of God's. And here in Genesis 3, he's appearing as a snake, or he's taken over a snake. We're not told which. We're not even told about angels being created, or that there were angels, or that they've rebelled. We're told hardly anything, except we're just told there's a snake. Now, why? Why do we have to wait till Revelation to find out? Why doesn't it tell us here? Well, because the emphasis in Genesis 3 is mankind's choice. 
The emphasis is mankind's responsibility and guilt. The emphasis is an attempt to overthrow, to turn around God's plan for mankind. What was God's plan? Well, we've seen it in Genesis 1 and 2. The plan was mankind as the image of God, under God, but ruling over the rest of creation. Do you get that? God at the top, but mankind as his representatives ruling over creation. And within mankind, the husband as head of the wife. And what's going on in Genesis 3? An animal tells the woman what to do, The woman tells her husband what to do and they together tell God what to do. Get away, we'll do without you. It's an exact turning upside down of God's plan, of the way it was supposed to be. So there's nothing here in Genesis 3 about angels or even telling us who Satan is because the angels and Satan are a bit of a sideshow we shouldn't get distracted by. The main show is mankind. In Genesis 1, it's mankind to rule the world. In Genesis 2, it's mankind under God's care. In Genesis 3, it's mankind doing the rebelling. And in the rest of the Bible, it's mankind being saved. Because God loves mankind. God loves his people. We have a snake And then secondly, with a seduction. Verses 1 to 5, the snake has a seduction. Now, it is important we remember that Genesis 3 is telling us a one-off event. Once in history this happened, but given that that snake is still active today, Satan is still around, knowing his way of working is helpful for us so we can resist him. So let's see how he works The first attack, verse 1. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? What is he putting into Eve's mind? This woman called Eve, what's he putting into her mind? The idea that God is not good. He's putting into her mind the idea God is limiting you. He puts restraints on you. Is God not letting you eat from any tree in the garden? Do you notice the clever way that he's put it? Isn't he letting you eat from any tree in the garden? How ungenerous of him. Josh Harris was a famous church leader in the USA until very recently, just a couple of weeks ago. But he's recently announced that he's renounced his Christianity. He has deconverted. Why? Well, from what I've made, I can make out, the, one of his main reasons, he says, is because it, the Bible, the God described in the Bible, cannot go together with the sexual revolution. God, as described in the Bible, makes life less good by restraining us in this area. Now, I don't want to be harsh on him because I don't know what other struggles and questions he's had, and I'm sympathetic with people who have struggles and questions. But that reason he's given is a rubbish reason. It's the lie of Genesis 3 still alive today. And it's still such a powerful lie that says, God isn't really good. You're better off 
without him. Satan is putting into Eve's mind the idea God isn't good. And he's casting doubt on something else. What else is he casting doubt on in verse 1? He said to the woman, did God really say? Are you sure God said it? Are you sure that that's God's message? Did he really say? I was involved years ago in in, uh, University Christian Union doing a survey of students and what did they believe about things. I remember speaking to one person who said, there are so many religions, there are so many ideas, we'll never know which one is right, so let's just get on with our lives. Very common attitude. If there is a God, he hasn't made himself clear. So we just get on with our lives. If we're not convinced that God has spoken, that he's made himself known, that he's told us truths we can be clear on, well, what basis for life do we have? We'll just live by what we think is clear, our own ideas. In other words, we'll be our own God. God isn't good, he says, by questioning, did God really say? But how does he do it? How, in verse 1, does Satan make this attack? Does he come to Eve and say, look, God is not good, he's a big spoil sport, he's got it in for you? No, he's much more subtle. He insinuates, he suggests, he subtly plants an unspoken idea in, his, in her mind. I've been reading some books by Philip Pullman. He's a very interesting author. Uh, His Dark Materials trilogy. He's clearly got an atheistic agenda. But he hasn't written books full of arguments. They're not books like Philip, uh, what's his name, Richard Dawkins' books. At least Richard Dawkins is up front and tells you, I'm out to attack Christianity. Now, Philip Pullman has written books that instead get ideas into your mind without quite stating them. In fact, I heard about a conversation between Philip Pullman and Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, and they both agreed that a story shouldn't be pushing a message. A story should be, I'm not 100% sure I've remembered the words rightly, I think they said, getting your sympathetic imagination. Getting your sympathetic imagination. Sowing seeds of the almost unconscious idea, God is not good. He hasn't really spoken. Philip Pullman never exactly says it in his books, but he's very good at sowing the idea. Be aware that is Satan's continual tactic. And he's got a foot in the door. Let's move on to verses 2 to 3. And he's got a foot in the door. I hope that's not too odd to say a snake's got a foot in the door. (laughs) Anyway, I hope you get that. Now, some people say that Eve has gone wrong by answering Satan. She shouldn't have answered him. She's gone wrong by starting to speak to him. I'm not so sure that that's where she's gone wrong. Can you think of a reason why I'm not so sure she's gone wrong to answer him? Because Jesus did, when Jesus was tempted. He gave Satan an answer. So when questions and doubts affect your mind, the response, I'm not even going to answer that, I'm just going to push that out of my mind and hope it goes away, I don't think that response is likely to work. I think you'll find the doubts will just come back later because they haven't been dealt with. 
We should answer. But where did Eve go wrong in her answer? Well, she gets the basics right. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. She's got the basics right. God did say, and I'm going to report what he said. But there are some hints she's moving slightly in Satan's direction. What was God called all the time back in chapter 2? Now, a little complication here. Chapter 2 really begins at chapter 2, verse 4. Our chapter divisions haven't quite got it right. Chapter 2, verse 4 onwards is God caring for people in the garden. And what is he always called? He's always called the Lord God. The Lord is his name. It's not a title, it's his name. This is the personal God, known by a personal name, uh, who's close to these persons that he's created. But when Satan comes to Eve, it's just God, this abstract idea, this distant power. And Eve starts to adopt that. Is she, possibly, in verse 2? She just calls him God. Let's drop his name. There's trouble ahead for us when God becomes an, an idea to be debated, not a person to be known. There's a hint she's moving in Satan's direction. And there's another hint when she adds to God's words. Verse 3, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now this could just be careless but it's significant, it makes God sound harsher. He's put a tree there that's lethal even to touch. What sort of God is that? The snake has got a foot in the door. And where is Adam in all of this? Where's where's her husband gone? Have a look at verse 6. He's with her, verse 6 says, towards the end of the verse there. He's with her. But he's supposed to guard the garden. That's one of the jobs he was given in chapter 2, to guard it and to care for his wife. So why is he not getting a stick and driving the snake out? If you have responsibility to lead, whether you're an elder in the church or a husband in a marriage or parents in a family, if you fail to do so, if you fail to step up and take the lead, don't expect the devil to just sit back and watch. He'll be in there. He'll be straight into the gap you've left. Let's move on to the second attack. This is verses 4 to 5. The second attack. Satan now pushes it further. Now he's more blatant. Verse 4, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's got her listening to a suggestion and now he'll get her listening to a downright lie. Temptation's so often like that. Just a little look at this slightly provocative image online. And then let's have a bit more. And then let's have a little bit more. And then let's have a little bit more. Until you're hooked and looking at things you never dreamt you would have done. Temptations like that. Let's get in with a suggestion. Then let's drive it further. What is his blatant lie? Verse 4. His blatant lie is God is bluffing. God's bluffing. He won't really punish you. 
still is lie today, isn't it? God wouldn't really send anyone to hell, say so many people. No, no. It's just put in there to keep you, keep you behaving well. But he won't really. I met a person going to a good church. He said, I really like it, this church. Uh, it's, uh, it's, the people are so friendly. I, I feel good singing hymns. I, I like the teaching of Jesus about how we should treat each other. But Jesus coming again as judge? No, no, not really. That's not going to happen, is it? What about all those jokes about hell? Isn't that Satan's tactic? Let's not have an argument about whether there's such a place. Let's just sow the seed, the idea, of course no sensible person believes in a God of judgment. But Genesis 3 and the sorry history of the world ever since say God is not bluffing. He carries out his threats. Be warned. We have a a snake with a seduction, leading thirdly to a sin, leading to sin. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now again, remember it's a one-off event, it's once in history, but it's like the model sin to get us to see our sin. So let's see what our sin is like. And the first thing is, it's rooted in disbelief. She doesn't believe God is good. Instead, she believes what he's keeping from her is good. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good, she believes what God has told her not to do is good. So she doesn't believe his word. And she doesn't believe his warning. Now, fellow Christians, even when we, Christians, believers we call ourselves, even when we sin, it's rooted in disbelief. Even if it's not fully expressed in our mind, at the moment we're sinning, we are disbelieving God saying, you'd be better off without that sin. Because we're thinking, actually, I want this sin, I'll be better with it. We're disbelieving God warning. Abstain from sinful desires. They war against your soul. Because we're thinking, I won't do any harm. It'll be all right. I'll get away with it. We're disbelieving God's promises. Because he says, I can equip you and give you strength to say no to that sin. And we think, I've fallen for it so many times. I'm just bound to fall for it again. What's the point of struggling? Let's just do it. Christian brothers and sisters, it may not be conscious, but that's what's going on. And we insult our Father by demonstrating our unbelief of him whenever we sin. What's this sin like? It's rooted in disbelief and it is trying to take God's place. Have a look at verse 6 again. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good. Now, does that ring a bell? Where in Genesis have we had someone seeing that something was good? She saw that it was good. It's giving us a hint here. When has someone else seen that it was good? Well, Genesis 1. Repeatedly, we find God say, we find it saying, and God saw that it was good. 
It's telling us God is the one who decides what is good. And Eve is now saying, I'm the one who decides what's good. And I've decided that thing God has said I can't have is good. Trying to take God's place. Now that's just a hint at it, but it's made more definite by what is this tree called that they couldn't eat from, that they shouldn't eat from? What's the tree called? If you don't know, it's in chapter 2, verse 17. Chapter 2, verse 17 says, You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Isn't Isn't it a good thing to know what's right and wrong? Didn't they already know right and wrong? They knew it was right to work and care for the garden and love each other and they knew it was wrong to eat from this tree. So what does it mean it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, it's about knowing like God. It's a bid to know like God. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 22. Chapter 3, verse 22 After they've eaten, the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Become like God in the way he knows good and evil. How does God know good and evil? Does he know it as a law he has to come under and has to obey? No. Does he know it as a principle someone else has set and he's got to keep to it? No. God knows good and evil in this way. He decides what is good and evil. What is good and evil is totally a reflection of his character. Anything like his character is good. Anything unlike his character is evil. He's the one who sets it. And Adam and Eve are saying, we want that sort of knowledge of good and evil. We will decide it for ourselves. So as they take that fruit, they are not just law breakers, they are trying to become law makers. They're saying, we don't, we're not satisfied with what God's given us. We don't want him telling us what to do. We want to decide for ourselves what's right and wrong. We want to decide for ourselves what's good and evil. And we're like that every time we say, I think there's nothing wrong with sleeping with my girlfriend. What harm does it do? I think it doesn't matter what religion you follow, as long as you're sincere. I think it's unreasonable for God to demand perfection. What an unreasonable standard. We're saying, I'm going to decide good and evil. In fact, our society thinks that that's the height of self-fulfilment. Be true to yourself. What? Don't come under authority. Now, you don't want anything servile like that. Those, by the way, were exactly the words of Christopher Hitchens, the famous atheist who was interviewed just before he died and asked, what if you discover that there is a God? He said, well, whatever I discover, I refuse to come under any authority. I'm my own person. Exactly what's going on here. Well, maybe next month, who knows, maybe next month we'll have the Queen opening Parliament. Do you think it's going to happen? And giving her speech, saying what her government is going to do. And imagine you could get in there, into the House of Lords, 
and you manage to get up near that throne and you give the queen a good old shove and you get her off the throne and you sit yourself on it and you say, right, I'm going to read my speech, what I think should be done. Imagine it. But when we sin, we give God a shove, at least we try to. We try to shove him right off the throne so we can sit there instead and say what we think is right and wrong. Do you see sin like that? Do you see its rebellion against God? Do you see its guilt in the face of God? Or are you so self-centred, so centred in on self, that even how you think of sin is mainly, this spoils my life, this makes me feel bad about myself? I think we often do, don't we? And those, those things are true, it does spoil our lives. And it does make us feel bad about ourselves. But isn't it a sign of how centred in on self we are that often that's our main thought about sin when we start to react against it? Instead of this, I'm trying to shove God off the throne. What a guilty rebel. Well, there in chapter 3 is a snake with a seduction leading to a sin. But there is a danger with how we've heard this. Because we could react, there's a snake, right, I'll be on my guard. There's a seduction, okay, I'll be aware and resist it. There's sin, okay, I'll fight that tendency in me. And that would all be good, and that would all be correct, please do that. But if it's just that, it will be a disaster. If you just react like that, it will be a disaster. Because Genesis 3 is not written as a guide to daily life. Genesis 3 is written to show how the world went wrong. And it's telling us the world's gone so wrong, we've gone so wrong, that we can't fix it. We can't fix ourselves. The snake must be crushed, and that needs the promised snake crusher. The seduction must be countered, and that needs the Son of God, who is the truth. Sin must be put right, and that needs the only one who resisted its power and yet paid for its sin, Jesus. Genesis 3 shows sin to be so gripping and so wrecking, it shows the rebellion to be so deep-seated, who could put it right? Well, only the king who's been rebelled against, himself coming and taking the place of rebels. Surely they must die, says Genesis 3 but he will come and die in their place. And now he's risen, and now he's alive, and he says to rebels, give up your attempt to be independent of God. Give up claiming you can decide good and evil and figure out life for yourself. He says, enter my kingdom like a child. Just what Adam and Eve refused to be. Admit you need God. Admit you depend on God and come under the authority of King Jesus. Have you? Let's pray.